And I want to invite all of you to turn over with me now in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. So as we get to the end of this letter, what you'll find is that Paul does what he often does at the end of letters to churches. He begins to give several short commands about several different things. I mean, he, he does this, for example, at the end of Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, just to name a couple of examples. That's why we just read the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do you remember some of the things in the text that was just read? Uh, just a whole list. You know, be at peace among yourselves. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will in Christ for you. And that's just, that's just some of what's in that, in that text. Not surprisingly, Paul does something very similar at the end of Philippians. From Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 9, Paul gives several clear commands about key aspects of the Christian life. And to see what I'm talking about, we're actually going to just read those nine verses all at once here. So verse 1, Philippians 4, verse 1. Just look for the commands. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. In this way, my beloved, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. This is a great passage. Many great verses. Some you may have memorized in the past. Some you might want to memorize for the future. But did you notice how many commands there are? Okay, depending on how you group them, you've got nine verses, you've got nine commands in those nine verses. We looked at the first three verses last week. That was the part about Yodia and Syntyche, two ladies who struggled with one another or some, some conflict between them. We talked a lot about that. Today, our text, even though it says 4, 4 through 7, is going to be even shorter than it. Philippians 4, verse 4. That's going to be it. Shortest sermon text ever here. Not shortest sermon, shortest sermon text. Okay? But before we look at that one verse... I want to start with a few big-picture observations about this kind of section in the Bible, because you're going to read this wherever you are in the New Testament in Paul's writings. Okay? So the first thing I want to point out is that these many commands, lots of them, okay, they come from someone who deeply loves the people that he is writing these commands to. Okay? Sometimes you might think somebody's just listing out a bunch of commands for you, to you, you know, do, do they love you? Like, why are they doing that? These, these commands come from someone who 
deeply loves these people. And we saw last week with Yodia and Syntyche, some of these commands would have been really hard to hear. That's why you have to remember the first verse of chapter 4. Look at, look at the first verse again. Look at how Paul describes his friends in Philippi. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You use those words about each other? Who do you call your beloved? Your joy. This... These commands are coming from a man who deeply loves these people. All of the commands are coming from a man who loves this church like family. Second, just big picture, these commands throughout this section are rooted and grounded in the Lord. You see, a lot of what's in these verses could be just stripped out and given as good advice to people. For example, you could tell pretty much anyone things like stand firm, pursue unity, rejoice, be thankful, don't be anxious, think good thoughts, do the next right thing. You could imagine a coach, for example, going through all those things with his team or her team. And and think about who, who in our society would disagree with any of those things. It sounds like good advice for anyone, and it is, but Paul's counsel is not just general advice about how to live well. These commands are rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus. I mean, think back to the list I just gave and listen to what Paul actually says. Stand firm in the Lord. Agree with each other in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and it goes on like that. Okay, this section is not a list of secular virtues to pursue or just generic good advice. It's distinctly Christian. And that's what you will see in all of these ends of letters like this. Okay? Paul is speaking to people who truly know the Lord and love the Lord. He's speaking with the authority of the Lord behind him. And he's challenging them about how to think in the Lord and how to live in the Lord. Okay, third big picture observation. These commands are, are practical, like personal, but yet they're very broad. Like they're not super specific. Okay? They, they touch our lives directly. I mean, who among us never has conflict with other Christians? Who among us doesn't struggle at times with having joy or with being anxious? or with thinking right, or doing right, or with gentleness. These commands are practical. They touch our lives directly. And yet, when you look at them, they're pretty broad. Even with Yodia and Syntyche, which is a specific situation, Paul doesn't get into the specifics of it. He gives them big picture application, like agree in the Lord. And then especially from verses 4 to 9, Paul's focus is on big things. Joy, thankfulness, prayer, how you think, how you act. Okay? And then and lastly, 
just to say up front, with this section and any section at the end of these letters, the hope for obeying the commands is always in God. In this text, it's in God's presence and God's peace. That's what Paul highlights in the text. Okay, so when, when you're reading these sections, because sometimes we like to memorize these verses for good reasons, we always need to be careful that we don't strip out the last commands from the rest of the letter that's behind the commands. Okay. So behind the commands is a, is a letter that we've gone through that's full of the gospel, a letter where Christ and his cross are central, a letter saturated in the grace and working of God. For example, I remember the sixth verse of the letter. Do you remember that one? Paul says about these people, I'm confident in the Lord about you that the God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or you maybe remember these words from chapter 2. Work out your own salvation because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And even in this section, you can see how in the middle of the commands and throughout the commands, Paul encourages his friends with the hope of God's peace and God's presence. So, for example, Paul challenges us in verse 6 to turn our anxieties over to the Lord. And then he assures us in verse 7 with a promise that God's peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. In verse 8, he challenges us to think and live well, 8 and 9. And then he closes with the assurance and the God of peace will be with you. Okay? So as we walk through the text today, just one command of this repeated. We ought to feel the weight of the commands, but we also need to remember the gospel soil that's beneath all the commands. Okay, now, our text today, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You have that one memorized? You should learn it from today's sermon if you don't have it, okay? This is one of the most well-known verses in this letter. Certainly one of the easiest in the Bible to memorize. We sang it with our kids last night when we were putting them to bed. Okay? This is a very simple verse, and yet it is very challenging. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. To see how challenging that verse is, you just need to ask yourself, do you do that? Do you? Do you do that? Always? Do you rejoice in the Lord? Always. That's challenging because that is so comprehensive. Right? It's also challenging, I think, because it, it can be a little hard to explain clearly what that would look like to live like that. Rejoicing in the Lord always. If somebody asks you, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord always? Like, what, what would that actually look like? Have you ever seen somebody do that? Live like that? Like, what, what would it look like? It's not as easy to explain as you might think. Okay. So, today I want to slow down, and I want to think about this one verse and what it means. Okay, so I want to think about the verse first in light of the letter. Okay, so, 
So first thing, just even in this verse, notice that Paul emphasizes this command even maybe above the other commands around it. How do you, how do you know he emphasizes it? Because he says it twice, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Does Paul ever do that in the rest of his writings? I was thinking about it. I know his letters pretty well. I don't think Paul ever does that. Like he actually like repeats the command. Okay? So he's clearly emphasizing it here. But this is something that Paul has also emphasized throughout the entire letter to the Philippians. This is a theme in this letter. Okay, we've touched on it from time to time when we've been in the previous text. But I want to walk back through the letter a little bit and see this at one time. Okay, and this is only a portion of the text that talk about joy in this letter. But look at chapter 1, where Paul opens the letter by talking about his prayers. How does he pray for these people. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Later in chapter 1, perhaps you can remember how Paul talks about how there are some people that he knows who are preaching Christ for the wrong reasons. Do you remember that? It's kind of a strange thing. There were people he knew, he's under arrest in Rome, people he knew outside, not under arrest, preaching Christ with bad motives. He said, some of them are preaching Christ to try to hurt me. What did Paul say about that? What do you think about that? Philippians 1, verse 18. What then? Like, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, like false motives, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Okay, now for a text from chapter 2. Okay, halfway through chapter 2, Paul considers again, not for the first time, considers again the possibility that he might die. The trial he's waiting for might not go his way. His life might be poured out soon. What does he think about that? If that happens, what does he have to say about that? Philippians 2, verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me too. Okay, for one more text from chapter 3, the first verse of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So you could say this is command at least three times okay, in the letter. Joy is one of the major themes of this letter here at the end. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Okay, and then the last thing about thinking of this command in light of the letter as a whole is you have to remember that both Paul and the Philippians were facing hard times. Okay, Paul, of course, has been a prisoner for nearly four years by this point. He also knows that he may be executed 
in the upcoming days. The Philippians are also going through hard times. Okay, for one thing, they are not a wealthy church. In fact, in the New Testament, this church is known for its poverty. It's known for its poverty and generosity in spite of its poverty. But they're known for their poverty. For another thing, we know there's at least some tension in this church. How do we know that? Because Paul just talked about it in the last verses, about Yodia and Syntyche. Things could be better than they are in the church. And for another thing, Paul is clear earlier in the letter that the believers in Philippi were facing the same kind of opposition he had faced when he first went there. Maybe they weren't being beaten and arrested like Paul and Silas were, but the same opponents were coming after them. This was a church that was in suffering. Their allegiance to Jesus did not fit well in a Roman colony. So my point is that this call to rejoice always did not come from a guy going through swell times, nor was it sent, given to people going through good times. It was written from a guy going through hard times to people going through hard times, and he tells them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, and he has shown himself to be doing that throughout the whole letter. Now, what I want to do then is I want to zoom in on that command and to think about the words, the phrases. Okay? Rejoice in the Lord always. I want to walk through them in reverse order. Okay, you'll know if you've been here long. I don't usually go so detailed. I think more of like how the text fits all together. Okay? But in this line, I want to think specifically about those words and phrases. Okay? Starting in reverse order. The word always. Okay. What does that communicate? Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul is clearly telling us to do this regardless of our circumstances. Okay. To put that another way, obeying this command is not dependent on how well or how bad things are going. <clears throat> We're being called to rejoice in both situations, good and the bad, pleasant, unpleasant, desirable, undesirable. All situations. That's a high bar, right? I mean, couldn't, I don't think it could be any higher than that. We might wonder how is that even possible for somebody to do that. Okay. Second, working backwards through the text. Okay. I want to focus on the phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I think that's the key to understanding the command. It's the phrase, in the Lord. It's the only way you'll be able to obey this. The only way you'll be able to rejoice always is if the rejoicing is in the Lord. Why? To be able to rejoice in all circumstances, your joy has to be in something better than your life, in something more stable than your circumstances. As I often say, life in this age is, even at its best, a mix of joys and sorrows. Our circumstances at best 
our up and down. To be able to rejoice in all circumstances, our joy has to be anchored in something better and more stable than our circumstances. And that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Jesus is better than life, and he's more stable than our circumstances. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same no matter what situation you're in. He never changes. So Paul says, rejoice in him always. Jesus is the one constant in this life. He's the only anchor of our souls. And just just recently on on Facebook, I have seen guys I know or, or maybe mutual friends who are around my age with kids whose wives are dying or have passed away in an accident. You feel that that's like the constant in, in life, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Jesus is the only constant. Circumstances change. Jesus never changes. This is how Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. But, it, but I think we can add to this. It's not just the fact that Jesus himself is unchangeable. That gives us a constant reason to rejoice. We also need to think about the things Jesus has done for us. And this is really good news for us. Whether we're going through good times or hard times, the things Jesus has done for you are more important than your circumstances. And the things Jesus has done for us, like the big things he's done for us, don't change. They don't change like our circumstances do. So I just was thinking, like, what are some of the biggest things Jesus has done for you? You, you could put a few down, but what would you say? I mean, what are some of the biggest things Jesus has done for us? I would say, above everything else, Jesus died for my sins. And he took them all away. Okay, so then I think a question. Is that going to change? Do you have any doubt that that will change? Is there anything that could happen to you that would make that change? Or I think of the presence of Jesus, like his promise that he's with us, something of the past. Okay, Jesus has been with you in every circumstance. Have you experienced that? Has the Lord been with you in your happiest days? Has he been with you in your healthiest days? Has he been with you in your saddest days? In your sickest days? I'm simply pointing out through these things, and you could go on and on, that the key to this command is the phrase, in the Lord. To be able to rejoice always, our joy has to be anchored in something better and more stable than our circumstances. And that something turns out to be a someone. That that someone is Jesus. Jesus is better than life. He's completely stable. I don't care how stable of a person you are. You can be shaken. Jesus is never shaken. He is stable. He's the one constant 
amid life's ups and downs. And to add to that, the biggest things that Jesus has done for us and that he promises to do will never change. They are as, unstable, or they are as, as stable and unchangeable as he is. Okay? Now I want to come back to the word rejoice, which is actually where I think we have a hard time understanding what this means. Okay. To rejoice always. What does it mean to rejoice? You look at the translations, virtually every translation just says that English word rejoice. Okay, so what do you picture? Picture someone rejoicing in the Lord. And what comes to your mind? I think we probably have a lot of different pictures that come to our mind. It doesn't mean, for example, that the person will be smiling. Is the person smiling in your picture? Is the person happy? Is the person laughing? Laughing a lot? Laughing loud? Are, do those things equal rejoicing? Being happy, smiling. Okay. On the one hand, those things certainly may accompany joy or signify it, but I think it would be a mistake to define joy or rejoicing by those things. Okay, just for example, is every person who is smiling full of joy. Not just joy in the Lord, but just joy in general. I bet you you see a lot of people who are smiling who don't have what the Bible is talking about by joy. Certainly not joy in the Lord. What about someone who's not smiling, though? Can you conclude, if they're not smiling, that they are without joy? Not necessarily, right? We typically think of things like these as being more connected to circumstances. The smiles, the laughs, we, we tend, the happiness. We, we tend to connect those more to circumstances. But, but having joy in the Lord is something deeper than those things because joy in the Lord is not dependent on those circumstances. Otherwise, how could Paul say rejoice in the Lord always? But here's where I, I, I think it can get a little confusing. Okay, what does it actually look like to rejoice? And is rejoicing at all connected to things like happiness, cheerfulness, things like this? Like, how do, we, how do we work through that? Because we know that a person could seem to be happy and maybe not have joy in the Lord or, or might be really struggling but actually be rejoicing in the Lord. Like the, but yet we often connect the two. So how do we work with this? This is actually something, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This has been something I've thought about a lot and, and really struggled to grasp. What exactly is the command? Rejoice in the Lord always about. So to start with, I want to I share three of my own reflections on this. And then I want to share a few illustrations, both from the Bible and from experience, that I hope will help us. Okay. So just some of my own thinking. I, these are suggestions, okay? But this is how I've been trying to think of this. First, I want to suggest that joy in the Lord may look different in one person's life than in another or on one person's face than on another person's face. To add to that, rejoicing in the Lord may look very different at different times in your own life. You got that? I'm just suggesting that rejoicing may look different between different people, and it may look different at different times in your own life. Okay. Second, Sometimes 
having joy in the Lord will come naturally and easily. Other times, having joy in the Lord will be really difficult. And it will be much more of a choice. In other words, there are going to be times in your life as a Christian when you really, really want to rejoice. And what should you do? Rejoice in the Lord. But there are going to be other times when you don't want to. And what should you do? Rejoice in the Lord. And third, sometimes rejoicing will be much more like celebrating, celebration. While at other times, rejoicing may be much more reserved and reflective. Okay? This is just kind of my own reflections. And then I want to think through some illustrations. Okay. Okay. I won't develop, I'm not going to develop these illustrations, but I, I want you to think about them. And you'll probably come up with others. I'm going to start with two illustrations from the Bible. So first, think of David's joy when the ark of God was brought into Jerusalem. Now, maybe you're not super familiar with the story. You'd have to go back to 2 Samuel to read it for yourself. But you can imagine it. There was shouting and celebrating The text says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And why not? God had rescued him from every evil, had brought him all the way to the throne of Israel. And now the ark of God was coming home. If you saw David that day, what might you have said he was doing? David was following my sermon, was rejoicing in the Lord. Wasn't he? Yes. Yes. You could have seen it in his body language, in his dancing. You could have heard it in his shouts and his singing. That kind of rejoicing in the Lord was like celebration. And it flowed out of him naturally and easily from the circumstances. I'm not saying he had no choice in it, but it, it fit. It flowed out like that. Many of the Psalms call us to rejoice in the Lord like that. Like the one we read for, from Psalm 97 this morning. You think of Psalm 100. Many songs we sing today have that kind of feel to them. We sang crown him with many crowns earlier, or the song Rejoice the Lord is King. If the tune comes to your mind, it's this triumphant tune with triumphant words calling us to celebrate that Jesus is King. Okay, but then I want to give a different illustration. I want you to think of the story of Job. Okay, what happened to him? In the first chapter, By the end of the first chapter, Job had lost all of his possessions and all of his children. It was a kind of suffering he could not 
have anticipated or explained. And yet, at the end of the chapter, what did Job say? Do you remember the words? They're famous words. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There was no shouting or celebrating, no dancing. It was an experience of unparalleled loss. And yet if you saw Job at the end of that day, and you heard what he said, how might you have described what he was doing? I might say Job was rejoicing in the Lord. That kind of rejoicing was much more reserved and it was much more calculated. In other words, it it involved much more choosing. There was nothing natural or easy about that. It was extremely difficult. Those two scenarios are about as different as I could imagine. And yet, I think it's fair to say they both demonstrate what it may look like to rejoice in the Lord. In both cases, there is a contentment and a delight in the Lord himself. And yet, that joy in the Lord is expressed very, very differently. And not only that, that joy flows easily from one circumstance and really hard from the other. In both cases, there's a choice, but in one, that choice goes with the grain, you might say. And in the other, the choice is completely against the grain. Everything stands against it. But in both situations, the Lord is the same. Is the Lord different on that great day in David's life than he was on that horrible day in Job's life? The Lord was the same Lord, unchanged in both situations. Maybe easier to see in the one, by the one man, than it would have been to see in the other situation. As we come back to Philippians, I want to remind us that this call to rejoice is coming from a guy who is experiencing much more of the Job sort of suffering than the David sort of blessing. And he's writing to people going through similar suffering. So if if you're going through the David kind of blessing, I want to challenge you to rejoice in the Lord because you should rejoice in the Lord always. (laughs) But it's not as hard to hear that. But when you're going through the Job sort of things, which is really more of what Paul and the Philippians are going through, this command hits harder. It is harder. What is the call? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In any and every circumstance, rejoice in the Lord you love. And for a final illustration, I want, to come, I want you just to come up with your own. You might not have a lot of time to think about this, but, but sometimes when we think, okay, what is it to rejoice in the Lord? It might be easier to see it. If you've witnessed it, it might be easier than if you had to define it. Can you think of any Christians that you've seen rejoicing in the Lord? Okay, for one thing, we see this Sunday after Sunday as we come here. There are people from countless different circumstances and we unite our hearts together to sing praises to God and worship Jesus together. And if you ever look around, you'll see all sorts of emotions, all sorts of things 
on people's faces because we're all coming from such, we have different personalities, but we're all coming from such different circumstances behind us. You see it every week like that. But have you ever personally seen a Christian go through really hard times with joy? You might have to think about it, but I imagine most of us could come up with someone that we've personally sat with or witnessed going through horrible things with joy in the Lord. My question is, what did that look like? Were they celebrating? Laughing? Dancing? Maybe. Probably not, if you're thinking of really hard times. So then what did their joy look like? Like, why did they come to your mind? How did you know they had true joy in the Lord? How did you see it? At least from my own experience, as I thought through some of these stories in my own life, I'd say I, I saw their joy in things like this. It was seen in their contentment, in their hard circumstances. I saw they were satisfied in the Lord, in the Lord himself. I saw their hope in the Lord for their future. I heard their thankfulness to the Lord for all that was behind them. And and in some of these occasions, they rehearsed to me the goodness and faithfulness of God. And they often wanted to rehearse it by singing or by just hearing some scriptures or by praying together. Perhaps there were even tears on their faces or broken words in their songs. But you could see joy in the Lord in their hearts. How would I describe what they were doing? They were rejoicing in the Lord. That's what we want to have in our lives too. What does that take to have genuine joy in the Lord? This kind of true contentment and satisfaction in the Lord that can transcend circumstances. It requires that we really know the Lord. That we have a real relationship with him. Do you have that? If not, we'd love to talk with you about that. But rejoicing in Jesus requires that we first come to know him and trust him and that we are growing to know him more, more and more personally, more relationally, that we're growing to love him, trust him, and delight in him. Rejoicing in the Lord requires that we truly know the Lord. And the more we know him, the more we know how good he is, the more we know of his promises, the more we know how he's never failed us, the more this command makes sense. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words? This has been a lot of meditation on a, on a really simple and yet hard command for us. We want to 
rejoice in you always. And yet, we can get distracted or we can get really hurt or in despair over circumstances and and this becomes really hard for us. And so I pray that today you will help us through this sermon to remember you, Lord Jesus, who you are and all that you've done for us and help us in whatever fits our circumstances today to delight in you, to rejoice in you, and to encourage each other to do so with us. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.